I invite you to turn to our scripture passage today, and uh, we're looking at Exodus chapter 20 and just verse 3. So, Exodus 20, verse 3. And it reads, You shall have no other gods before me. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your profound word that even speaks to us today just as it did so many thousands of years ago to these people. We pray that your word would be living and active today, that your word would speak to our hearts and our souls, to speak into the deepest parts of us, and to help form us and fashion us in the image of Christ. We pray that you would do this through the power of your word preached. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you just had a horrible day at work. How do you unwind when you get home? Throw back a couple of beers till you feel relaxed? Check your investments for the fifth time and recalculate how soon it is till you can quit? It's been a draining day with the kids. How do you go find some solace? Maybe finish off that bottle of wine? Some shopping therapy later that night? You just had a horrible breakup. How do you spend the next weekend? Looking for some quick thrills to take your mind off your heartbreak? Maybe swing by the bakery at Harmon's to stock up on some treats for the weekend. You just got a bad medical diagnosis. How do you spend the next several hours? Angry at why your health is so bad compared to others? Spending hours researching everything you can about this disease? One of the ways that you know what you worship is by looking at what your heart turns to in times of stress and trouble. The gods are those things that we turn to when we need help, when we are stressed, when we need solace. And so what we turn to in stress is what often is serving as our God. Where does your heart turn when you're stressed? What do you long for when you're overwhelmed? When we talk about worshiping an idol, initially it can sound very foreign to us, right? We think of setting up a little statue or some sort of creepy ceremony at night uh, with a bonfire and chanting. And I don't do any of that stuff. But you can turn anything into a god. Uh, Martin Luther, who we read from earlier in that same catechism, he said, all it takes is trust and faith. And you can turn anything into a god by trusting it and putting faith in it. So what are you trusting in and putting faith in? What are you thinking? If only I could get this, then I'd be satisfied with life. Luther also wrote, God is a term for that we look to for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Thomas Watson wrote, to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. If you look at our country, you might not see a bunch of statues and shrines and holy buildings and, and things that you might find in other parts of the world, but make no mistake, our nation, our neighborhoods, and even our homes are filled with idols. We just keep them in our garages or our storerooms or our bank accounts or our closets or our pantry or other places. We're in the second part of this series through the book of Exodus uh, called The Gift of the Law. And we're spending one week on each of the ten Commandments. And remember, these commandments aren't like a checklist for you know, how God grades your eternal report card, but they paint a picture 
of what God's kingdom looks like, what his culture looks like. And in this first commandment, we learn that God is our greatest good. If you want to sound fancy, you you call it the sumum bonum. It's Latin for the, the highest good. God is our sumum bonum. And idols are often good things that we've turned into the greatest good. And so what I want you to remember this morning is that God is your greatest good. God is your greatest good. And we're going to look at it in two ways. First, good things turned greatest and contentment as worship for the second. So, first point. Uh, Last week, if you remember, I said the Ten Commandments were paradigmatic, which meant that they set forth a general principle uh, that we should then learn to apply in various situations. That's why we can spend one whole sermon on each command, because we're going to understand the principle and then unpack it for various situations. And this command sounds very straightforward. You are to have no other gods before me. And if you remember the context of this command, it was Israel had just come out of Egypt, which was a nation and a culture that had all kinds of gods. They had lots of gods that they worshipped. And so this command for Israel to worship just one god would have made them stand out from the rest of their society. They would have been seen as kind of odd because they only worshipped one god. Now, the specific language of this command can be a little bit vague. Like, for instance, you shall have no other gods before me. Does this mean that Israel isn't to worship any other god at all? Or does it mean, well, you can keep a few other gods on the side, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, always has to be in the top spot. He's got to be your number one God. But when we look at the rest of the scripture, to better understand, say Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It makes clear that what God intends here is that your love of God is to leave no room for any other gods. And one of the continual temptations for the Israelites would be not to just stop worshiping Yahweh, but to add some other gods on the side and start worshiping them along with their worship of Yahweh, to kind of hedge their bets, right? Well, Yahweh's a good God, and he helps us out here, but you know what? He kind of seems to be slacking off in these other areas. So maybe there's some gods we can throw a little worship to that'll help us out in these parts of our life. And so many of us do this today, right? You say, oh yeah, I worship God, but you have a bunch of other things that you are putting your trust in on the side because in certain areas, God doesn't seem to be working too well for you. And so you start worshiping these other things, but thinking, well, maybe that will help me get what I want. To kind of flesh out this idea, I want to spend some time looking at one of the areas where the Israelites would continue to struggle to put their worship of Yahweh, their trust in Yahweh first. And that was in the issue of water, something we've all been thinking a lot more this year about. And one of the things that made Egypt such a worldwide power at that time was the Nile River. It provided a reliable source of water throughout the year. And the Nile and its floodplains was about as good as it got before they came up with water pipes. You couldn't get better than living near the Nile. Water is needed for life, to drink, for livestock, for crops. And the Egyptians trusted the Nile. 
It was what gave them life. It was what gave them safety. When other nations around were in droughts because they had no rain, the, the Egyptians still had the Nile. And so it's no surprise that they would start to worship the Nile as their God. What you put your trust in, what you put your hope in, where you find your security and safety, that is what is serving as your God. And the Nile is what let the Egyptians sleep well at night. It was what gave them a competitive advantage against their neighbors. It became God to them. And remember, if you can, what was the very first plague in Egypt? Exodus 7, 17 to 18. I will strike the water of the Nile with this staff in my hand, and the river will turn to blood, Moses said. The fish in it will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink any water from the Nile. You see what God is doing here for the Egyptians. He's undermining the very thing that they thought there was their security, the very thing that they thought, this is our God. The God of the Israelites is coming in Yahweh and saying, actually, there is a God who is bigger. There is a power behind the Nile that has control over even that. And that is what you need to worship. And we can apply this today. What is it that you put your security in? What does your heart rest in? What makes you feel safe? What if you don't have it? Makes you feel antsy and you can't sleep at night. These things are often functioning as your God. Martin Luther again writes, anything on which your heart relies and depends, I say that is really your God. So what does your heart rely and depend on? Now, you might not think of it as a god, right? You think, oh, I'm not you know, bowing down and worshiping it, but you are serving it like a god, right? Because you spend more time thinking about it than you do thinking about God. When things are stressful in your life, you run to it before you run to God. And what makes this so difficult for us to tease out these idols in our life is that many of the things that we worship aren't bad things, in fact, they're often good things, but we've, what we do is we take these good things and turn them into the greatest things. And that's when it becomes worship. That's when it becomes our God. So worshiping other gods right, doesn't mean like that image you maybe have in your mind of you know, sacrificing rats in your basement while listening to death metal in the dark, right? In some creepy ceremony. No, you can live in a very nice four-bedroom house with a manicured lawn, 2.5 kids, good retirement savings, and yet be completely engrossed in idol worship. Right? And it's all over your house. And you don't realize how much you are worshiping these things because we are so good at justifying them. Because there often is some good in them. Just think about the Nile. Well, what do you mean we're worshiping the Nile? You need water to live. Are you saying we, don't stop, we just stop drinking water? We stop watering our crops with the Nile? What, what are you doing? That's crazy. No, we're not worshiping it. We just need it to survive. And that is what is so tricky about idols. They are often these good and necessary things, but you've slowly propped them up into the greatest things. John Calvin wrote, The human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, from his mother's womb, is an expert in inventing idols. Making idols out of the things in your life is as natural as your next breath. And I found one of the best ways to test if something is an idol or not is by kind of just doing an experiment, letting go of that thing, 
giving it away and seeing what your initial reaction is and the thoughts that go through your mind. We run through a couple of common examples that we all struggle with. Money. No one here, I, I would guarantee, thinks that money is an idol for you. Right? Because you always look at the people that have more of it or who spend more of it or are clearly greedy, right? And don't give away anything. Well, you're not like them. They're, you know, money's an idol for them, but not for me. I don't worship money. I'm just being wise with my finances. But I would guess every one of us just by a, faction, by a factor of the nation that we live in and how strong consumerism is, we worship money more than we realize. So come up with an experiment. Tell yourself, you know what? This month, I'm not going to save any money, and I'm even going to dip into some of that savings and give it away to people that are in need, where there are needs in the world. What's your immediate reaction? I'll tell you mine. That sounds like a great idea for next month, right? But this month, I've got bills I need to pay. I need to save for this, right? We want to do this thing as a family. Money is an idol, not because of how much of it you have or how little of it you have, but because of how much you spend thinking about it and thinking, if I just had some more of it, then I'd be secure. Then I could do this. Then I could do that. It's so easy to turn shopping and buying things into a god, into a form of therapy. Now, again, we don't think it is for us, right? Well, it's not like I'm going to the fancy mall and buying $2,000 Louis Vuitton bags. No, I'm just buying cheap stuff on Amazon. I'm just buying stuff when it's on sale because it's a good deal. But, you know, test yourself with that. I'm not going to buy anything for a month outside of food, and if anything breaks, we'll replace it. And how does your heart react? Can you do that? Well, you discover that you've been treating it like a god more than you realize. Food and alcohol are great examples. Neither of these things are bad. There's good things about them. And yet it is so easy for them to creep their fingers around our heart and we start to worship them. So again, test yourself. I'm not going to drink for a month. Eating. It's so easy to justify, right? You need to eat to survive. You'll die if you don't eat. And yet, for so many of us, it is very easy to eat, not just to fill our stomachs, but to eat to fill our soul. And it will never satisfy it. So try, test yourself, give up some of those things. I'm going to have no sweets for a period of time, no seconds, no meat, whatever it is. And what's your heart's reaction? Maybe food is more of a God than you realize. Performance can be your God. Say, well, no, that's not true. I'm just, I'm just doing my work for God's glory, like the Bible says, okay? Well, why don't you try doing a little less work this month? Make sure you get enough sleep and spend more time worshiping God. You know, sometimes, if you're in school, a C can be more honoring to God than an A. Because you're not doing it for God's glory, you're doing it because you worship performance. Sometimes, a missed deal at work can be more glorifying to God because you set limits to your work and you show a greater worship of God than a greater worship of being a top performer in your company. Now our immediate reaction is, well, if I don't work this much, I'll get fired or I won't get that scholarship or I won't get into the college I really want to. But those reactions show you are trusting your performance more than you're trusting God to provide. But on the flip side, some of us, 
it's not performance that's our God, but rest or leisure can become our God. Laziness, setting so many boundaries, right, that, that actually you worship your own comfort. And you don't put yourself out there. You don't push yourself, right? For you, a C is not glorifying to God, and A would be because he's given you the ability to perform and the ability to work hard, right? Or at work. It is working harder, not less, because you are worshiping your own comfort. Maybe you, you can't keep a job for more than a few months without quitting. You don't serve others uh, on your weekends because you worship your leisure more. Because our hearts are idol factories, we are so good at convincing ourselves, well, no, I'm not really worshiping that. I'm just being realistic about what I need to survive. And I would guess that as I go through this list, probably every one of us, for at least one or two of those items, we're busy, we stop listening to me, and you're going through your head saying, well, this, that's why I don't need to do that. That's why I don't need to test that thing. I don't really worship that. I don't need to do what Pastor John recommends. This is why I love this quote from uh, Jonathan Haidt, where he says, conscious reasoning functions like a press secretary who automatically justifies any position taken by the president. And you know the picture, right? The president, whichever president is, does something ridiculous, and the press secretary's job is to make it sound like the most rational and important thing to do, right? And his point is, that's how our minds work with justifying the things that we do. With the help of our press secretary, we are able to lie and cheat often and then cover it up so effectively that we convince even ourselves. The reason we're blind to our own idols, that we refuse to even go a month without them, and we just, I know that would be foolish to do that, is because we've got a full-time press secretary in our mind telling you, you're not really worshiping it, so you don't need to give it up. And yet we go through life wondering why don't I feel more delight in God? Why don't I relish Him more in my life? It's because we don't realize we've been dividing our worship amongst all these other things. God is your greatest good. But where are you turning other good things in your life and making them and acting like they're the greatest? And this leads into our second point, contentment as worship. For all of Israel's struggles in Egypt, the one thing they had was water. And water would be a perennial source of temptation for Israel. It's even, we've seen it as, as Israel has made these, say, why, we wish we could go back to Egypt. Why? Because we ate so well. Why did they eat so well in Egypt? Because there was water to grow all that stuff. And water would always, they would always struggle with trusting God to provide water for them. And why? Because God was leading them to a land that didn't have a nice river like the Nile. There, sure, there was the Jordan River, but if you just look at the topography in a map, the Jordan River is down in a valley, whereas most of the people and livestock and farmland are up on the hills and plains above it. Right? And back then, the only way to get the water from down in the valley up to the hill was to carry it which maybe works for one or two people, but you cannot have a nation survive that way. And so wells and springs were an important source of water. It's why you see them featured predominantly in biblical narratives. But they weren't anything like the Nile. And most of Israel's water came from the rain. That's what they needed. If it didn't rain, they were doomed. 
When it rained, they would store it in, in cisterns and kind of rudimentary reservoirs. Today, though we take water for granted, right? Even in the greatest drought, the, you know, the, the debate is, well, how dead can you let your lawn go? Not how much water do we need to drink to survive, right? We're even spoiled during the drought. But you just go backpacking to learn how important water is. When I took our two oldest girls backpacking this summer, I knew the drought was bad and I thought I planned for that, but I didn't expect that all five creeks near our first campsite would be completely dry, right? Not even mud. And, and so we started to feel a little bit concerned. Uh, we had enough water for the first day uh, that we started to conserve. We skipped hot chocolate that next morning, which for them, that was like half the reason for going backpacking. And very soon, I started to feel like Moses leading the Israelites through the wilderness. Right? Why are we out here? Where's the water? Why can't we go back to McDonald's where the hot chocolate just overflows like honey? Right? And I started praying, Lord, please let there be water. Let there be water in one of these streams ahead. And then in the least likely of places, after climbing for about two hours that morning up to this ridge, we run across a little spring with just a trickle of water in it, and it was enough to fill up all our bottles and to make sure that even if we don't see any more water for the rest of the trip, we'll live. <laughs> Maybe not hot chocolate, but at least we'll live. And water is the difference between life and death. And imagine for the Israelites, right, that it wasn't a weekend backpacking trip, but this was their whole life, dependent on rainwater to feed not just their family, but their livestock and their crops and their fields. And so one of the greatest temptations for the Israelites was to add worship of some sort of rain god into what they did during, in their life. And it's why worship of Baal was such a temptation for them. And if you read any of the Old Testament narratives, so often it talks about the, the prophets of Baal or the, these holy places to Baal. Why was Baal one of their favorite gods, one of the ones they were so tempted to worship? Well, because he was know, known as the Lord of the rain and the dew. He was a storm god who was also named he who rides on the clouds. And when you live in a dry area that needs water, it is really tempting to throw a little worship his way to kind of hedge your bets to make sure that you're going to live. And Israel would often doubt, is, is Yahweh our God going to provide rain? Oh, look, here's a, a God that specializes in that. What, hurt, what harm would it do to just throw a little worship his, his way and increase our chances? And Israel might wonder, why of all the lands that God could have given us, why did he lead us here to this land? This land where water is so hard to get, where we're dependent upon it like daily bread. And they could look around to their neighbors and to the southwest, there was Egypt and the Nile, and they knew how good it was down there. To the east, there was Babylon with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, two mighty rivers that provided reliable sources of water. But then they look at their home where God put them and said, what do we have? Why are we here? We've got a river, but you know, that river, it's almost worse because there's no way to get the water from down there in the valley up to where our fields are. It's almost like it's sitting there mocking us because we can't use it like our neighbors do. Why did God lead us to a land where water is so hard to get? 
And this brings us to that second area where we don't put God first. It's when we're not content with the place that God has led us to, with the boundaries that he set in our life. And you look to the, the nations or your neighbors or the people to your left and your right and say, why do they have it so much easier? Why am I here always struggling with this thing? Why can't I be there? And to worship the Lord alone is to trust him in the placement and the details of your life. Like, where do you struggle with being content? Where do you find yourself spending all kinds of time wishing, why can't my life look more like that? Where do you spend your hours daydreaming about how you wish this thing could be different? Where are you jealous of that nice river that they have? Why can't I have that? And those places where you're not content are usually places where you're also worshiping some other god. You've put some other thing above God, and your heart has started wanting it more than you want God. Right? Because Israel might not have had a river that they could use for water, but what they did have there was God. His presence was there. He'd made that clear. And yet what happens? Well, but what we really need is this thing. Contentment is the sign of a heart that worships the Lord above everything else. Because you you say, you know, whether I have a lot or a little, whether the river is overflowing or the creek bed is dry, I have the Lord. And that is what I need most. That is what my heart longs for the most. And those areas where you are discontent, and I'm discontent, show areas where you are worshiping something more than God. Because kind of subtly, you're thinking, I could do a better job than God in this. I know what I need to be happy more than God does because obviously God's not giving me this thing. I know how to direct my life better than he does because I really need to be over there if I want to be okay. And that's the continual human struggle of so much of our life, right? So much of your life and my life is spent wishing for things to be different and wondering why aren't they. And yet that whole time, it's like God is right in the middle, but saying, but I am here. I am here. And so when God's ways diverge from what our heart really wants, it so often reveals that the reason we've been worshiping God is not because we really love him for better or for worse, but because we thought we'd have a better chance to get what we really love through him. And God became the stepping stone to what our heart most desires. You see, another kind of theme throughout all of Scripture is that God from the very beginning, from Adam to Abraham to Israel, has been looking for a person, a people, that would actually love him more than anything else. With a pure love. With a love that wasn't rooted in what he would do for them. It wasn't tied to how good God kind of followed their agenda, but a love that was so pure and so rooted in God, whether life is bad or good, whether things are going to how I want or not, I will love you no matter what. A love that is so strong that it would say to God, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. That verse is so profound. 
That is what contentment looks like. That is what true worship looks like. That my love, my trust of God, is deeper than this pain that is pressing in all around me, and I will trust God in that pain, even if it kills me. Because God is worth it. God is my greatest good. And brothers and sisters, that is why we need Jesus. Because none of us will love God like that. Jesus is the only one who looked towards the cross that would take his life and say to his father, though you may slay me, yet I will trust in you. On the night before the cross, when he would suffer in the most horrendous of ways, what did he say? Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Now, we all pray that, right? But then when it doesn't happen, what do we think? Well, God must not really love me. God doesn't hear my prayer. But what does Jesus pray next? Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. That's the worship of contentment. That's the worship of a trust in God that goes deeper than your pain. That's the worship of a God who is your greatest good. And it was for Jesus. I'll embrace the cross if that's where I'll find you. And we don't do that, right? We will rarely even embrace a month of minor sacrifices in order to grow in our love of God. We'll say, oh yeah, God is good, but so little in our life shows that we consider him our greatest good. Why would people say that of your life if they watched you for a month? And friends, you might doubt that God is your greatest good. That's the temptation we all have. But what I would encourage you to do is look at how good he's been to you. That while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That when your heart has been wrapped up in all these other things, and you've been running after one thing to another to another, thinking this is what will make me happy, God loved you when you were ignoring him. When you've lived so much of your life spending his grace on the things that you want, he kept giving of his life to you. That even when you hated God, you were on his heart. He said, I love you. God loves you. He knows the worst about you. And he still says, I want you to be mine. Will you show him the love that he's first shown you? Will you let him be your greatest good and trust? Whatever might happen, I want you, Father. I happened to be meditating on Psalm 84 earlier this week, and it, it fit in so well with our text. It reads, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. I long, yes, I faint with longing, to enter the courts of the Lord. With my whole being, body, and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. I mean, think about that. To worship God above all else, is to desire him with your whole being. Right? Not just to say in your mind, oh yeah, I love God the most, but to desire him from your head to your toe, with all of your emotions, with all of your body, to know that everything that you long for is only satisfied in Christ. And to realize that even in the darkness, he is there. And that even in the suffering of your life, he is what you need more 
than to get out of that suffering. Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Christian, how did you enjoy comfort before? He's speaking to the suffering Christian, right? Who's lost to these things that have brought you comfort. How did you enjoy comfort before? And then he says, was the creature anything to you but a conduit, a pipe, conveying God's goodness to you? And how many of us, you've spent your whole life worshiping the pipes that bring God's goodness instead of God's goodness. And when one pipe runs dry, you run to another. When one pipe isn't big enough, you go to a different one, thinking, well, maybe this pipe will do it. And Burroughs continues, friends, the pipe is cut off, says God. Come to me, the fountain, and drink immediately. God is who provides everything else in your life. Going back to Psalm 84, a single day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than to live the good life in the homes of the wicked. I mean, do you believe that? That to have God right now is better than having for that list of things that you wish you had right now. That to live in a shack, but to have God is better than living in a mansion, but have him on the side. Let me just bring in one other favorite psalm, 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. That's a picture of worshiping God first. Let's pray. Father, we ask that that would be true for us. That we might say, my health may fail, my spirit may grow weak. The things that I've relied on might be stripped from me. The things that I put my hope in might crumble. The things that I thought would bring me happiness may disappear. But you are mine, and that is enough. Father, give us a pure love. And we pray that you would do this. Only you can do it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.